Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, gang. Sadly, the subject of anxiety never seems to lose its relevance. Anxiety is an epidemic in our culture right now, especially after the pandemic. It's also a major issue in my own life, even after 13 years of meditating. So today we have one of the world's leading experts on anxiety here to answer a bunch of questions from me and also from you in the form of listener voicemails. Dr. Judd Brewer is the chief medical officer at ShareCare and director of research and innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center. He's the creator of several apps which use mindfulness to help you change habits, including emotional eating, smoking, and also anxiety, which he considers to be a habit. Speaking of anxiety, Judd is also the author of a book called Unwinding Anxiety, New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind. That book just came out in paperback recently. What I really love about Judd, aside from the fact that he's a personal friend, is that he combines clinical practice, in other words, he treats patients, he combines that with cutting-edge neuroscientific research and deep Buddhist practice. In that way, Judd is kind of like the robocop of dealing with human suffering. In this conversation, we talked about the current levels of anxiety in our culture post-pandemic, Judd's definition of anxiety, and his description of the mental habit loops that feed anxiety, why fear and planning can be helpful, but worrying is not, the steps Judd recommends for working with anxiety, the role curiosity and kindness can play in short-circuiting anxiety, mindfulness as what he calls the bigger, better offer for your brain, his advice for working with panic attacks and stage fright, how to differentiate between anxiety and excitement, whether we can try too hard to treat our anxiety, and why, as a society, we are moving away from distress tolerance, which he says is a bad thing. The moving away, not the distress tolerance. Anyway, we'll get started with Dr. Judd Brewer right after this. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, they've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market. 
Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. I want to share a recent discovery with you. G-Defy Shoes. That's G-D-E-F-Y Shoes. G-Defy is a footwear company on a mission to relieve your knee, back, and foot pain. As many of you may know, because I've complained about it, I have dealt with knee and back pain uh, for many, many years. So I'm super excited to check out these G-Defy Shoes. First thing to know is that every pair comes with two free custom orthotics to align your body perfectly. Then there's the patented VersaShock trampoline technology in the heel, which absorbs harmful shocks and provides positive, renewed energy, empowering you to tackle your day. The other thing to know is that GDefy has integrated a strong structural system into their shoes that improves your posture and encourages you to walk using your calf and other major muscle groups. Don't just take my word for it. Read the countless customer reviews raving about the pain relief and amazing comfort people have experienced after wearing G-Defy shoes. Like I said, I'm excited to check them out myself. Experience pain-free living for yourself and visit gdefy.com. That's G-D-E-F-Y.com and use code HAPPIER30 to receive 30 bucks off your order of $100 or more. Dr. Judson Brewer, otherwise known as Judd. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's fun. It's been a long time. I haven't seen you in a minute. Yeah, has been a long time. So we've got a, a lot of listener questions for you. But before we dive into that, I do want to do a refresher for people who either haven't heard you on the show before or who haven't heard you in a while. So let's just start here. What in your view, from your perch, is the state of the nation or the state of the world as it pertains to anxiety right now? Well, I would say it's been trending up. <laughs> we saw a big spike at the beginning of the pandemic. And I think if we look overall, whether it's BC before COVID-19 or, or even as we're moving into whatever this phase is now, huge amount of anxiety coming from a huge amount of uncertainty. And it's not just health anxiety, 
which we've seen really spike over the last couple of years, but we're seeing economic uncertainty, we're seeing political uncertainty, we're seeing environmental uncertainty. And all of those add together, you know, our brains, they don't care what type of uncertainty it is, all uncertainty says, hey, pay attention, this could be a problem. And so they kind of get us revved up, get us in our, is this dangerous mode? And are we seeing levels of anxiety either domestically or globally that we haven't seen before? Or did things calm down after an initial spike? They haven't really calmed down that much. Yeah. It's unfortunate. I would love (laughs) to be focusing on other things than helping people work with anxiety, but I think it is here to stay. I've asked you this question before, but I think it's worth asking again. How do you as a clinician and a scientist and a meditator define anxiety? Well, if you look at some of the dictionary definitions, I think they can be helpful places to start. You know, this feeling of nervousness or unease about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. So that's pretty broad. Life has an uncertain outcome if we look at it. So that definition, that feeling of nervousness or worry is helpful because that's something we all can relate to. We feel anxiety. And at the same time, I think one thing that we don't focus on enough is that that feeling can lead to worrying, which is a mental behavior on top of the feeling. We feel anxious, start worrying, oh no, you know, what's wrong? What's going to happen? What do I need to do? And that worry then feeds back and makes us feel more anxious. And yet worry and fear do have some useful purposes. Fear certainly has a useful purpose. So if there's danger, that fear says do something about the danger. And that fear can sometimes be triggered by uncertainty. Imagine if you hear a strange noise in your apartment or your house at night when you're sleeping, you know, you don't know what it is then it's going to be pretty hard to get back to sleep. You can't just roll over and be like, yeah, it'll be fine. (laughs) Our survival brains say, probably should figure that out. So fear is helpful. It's always been helpful, always will be helpful. And then other parts of our brains regarding that outcome, like that future orientedness are also helpful, like planning. But the worrying itself hasn't been shown to be helpful because it's kind of stuck, it kind of mushes together fear and planning. And we're stuck in this gray zone where we can plan all we want. But if that planning flips into worrying, for example, that's not going to change the outcomes because we can't, we don't know what's what's going to happen. But it certainly can change what's happening right now, which is it makes us more anxious. There are these quotes out there that I love around Worrying isn't going to solve tomorrow's problems. It's just going to take away today's peace, some flavor of that. And I think that's really dead on where it's like planning is helpful. It can help us predict and try to plan for the future. Yet when we worry, that's a layer on top of the planning that is not only doesn't help, but it also makes things worse. And I mean, there's to bring in some basic neuroscience here. I can imagine part of how this becomes a noxious downward spiral is that when you're locked in the fear, which is reinforced by the worry, the part of the brain that is smart, the prefrontal cortex, goes offline while the ancient lizard part of the brain, the amygdala, is in control. The amygdala is much more complicated than that, but that piece aside from a heuristic standpoint, 
yes, the, the prefrontal cortex goes offline. And ironically, we go into panic mode, which makes it really hard for us to think and plan. So we can't access that planning part of the brain when we're anxious, when we're worried, and especially not when we're panicked. I think definition of panic, something like wildly unthinking behavior. <laughs> so by definition, we're not thinking. But it could be even south of panic, right? Because you could you just be in an anxious mode and not have a full fight or flight situation going on. But that anxiety degrades your capacity to actually think clearly, if I'm understanding you correctly. Oh, absolutely. And anybody that's had mild, moderate, or severe bouts or even states or days or weeks of anxiety can attest to that. Nobody can think more clearly when they're anxious. They're kind of caught up in do something mode as compared to, hmm, let's think through this mode. So can you describe, before we get to listener questions, can you give us a sort of pricey uh, summary of your approach, the one you lay out in, in your book, which is just out in paperback, Unwinding Anxiety, what your approach is to dealing with this very common phenomenon? I'd be happy to. And so this approach came from me falling on my face, <laughs> trying to help my patients with anxiety. Prescribing medications, about one in five patients has a significant reduction in symptoms with medications. So I was basically playing the medication lottery, one in five, didn't know which one, didn't know what to do with the other four. And so I started looking at the literature and also looking at my lab's uh, habit change lab. And so turns out that Anxiety is driven like a habit. So those pieces, that feeling of anxiety can trigger the mental behavior of worrying. And that mental behavior of worrying makes us feel like we're in control or at least like we're doing something because it feels better to do something than nothing. And that feeds back and has our brain learn, oh, next time you feel anxious, you should worry. And I say that because that's the first step of my approach, which is to literally just map out these habit loops with my patients. And I've never had a patient come in through the clinic and say, no, I don't have any of these. It's typically, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And then they come back and they have a list of like 12 other habit loops that they've mapped out. So that's the first step is just mapping out these habit loops. The trigger could just be that feeling of anxiety. The behavior tends to be mental worrying, but it could also be procrastination, stress eating, whatever. And then mapping out what's the result. And then they start to see that cause and effect relationship, which is, oh, when I worry, I actually feel worse. This feeds back and makes me more anxious. So that's the first step. The second step is asking this very simple question, what am I getting from this? And that goes way back. You can look at it from a neuroscience lens. You can look at it from an ancient Buddhist psychology lens. And that really comes back to our brains saying, if something's rewarding, I'm going to keep doing it. If it's not rewarding, I'm going to stop doing it. So if somebody pays attention and they see that worrying isn't serving them, it's not keeping their family members safe, it's not solving the problem, it's, it's just adding to, the, to their problems and not helping them plan for the future, then they start to become disenchanted with it. And when they become disenchanted, it's easier to step out of the cycle. This third step is toward something better. And I think of it as anything that helps somebody step out of a habit loop. So here, our brains are looking for things that are more rewarding. We might as well give them to our brains. And we actually have several things right within us that are free and accessible and can actually 
build on themselves as we practice them. So I think of like curiosity and kindness as two inherent qualities that we have that are really strong and they only get stronger the more we practice them. So for example, if somebody is worrying, I'll have them notice what it feels like to worry. What's the result of that? What am I getting from this? And then I'll have them get curious. Huh? What does that worrying or what does the anxiety feel like in your body right now? And as they start to look and describe it, oh, it's tightness, it's tension, it's heat, it's this, it's this. Then I ask them, well, what does that quality of exploration feel like? You know, hmm, what does it feel like to be curious, basically? And they can start to see that curiosity itself feels better than worrying. And they can start to get in the habit of being curious when they're worried instead of worrying or when they're anxious instead of getting caught up in an anxiety habit loop, they can start to get curious and bring their awareness to the present moment and use that power of curiosity. So that's really my approach. And we've done clinical studies with our Unwinning Anxiety app. We've gotten 67% reduction in anxiety in people with generalized anxiety disorder. And there, that number, I mentioned one in five patients with medications, that number is about one, it's it's 1.6. So it's better than one in it's about one in two. So pretty, pretty effective when you utilize your own mind. <laughs> I love the simplicity of it and I love how effective it can be. And I also love as a neuroscientist, how it lines up perfectly with how our brains learn and all these reward mechanisms. We might as well leverage the strength of our brain rather than fighting against it. Let me see if I could do a rough recapitulation here just yeah, just to make sure I've got it and, and by proxy everybody listening. When people come in complaining of anxiety, you point out that anxiety is kind of a, a mental habit and you can have them map how that habit plays out for them. Trigger is feeling of fear. Behavior is worrying or stress eating or whatever. And the, the reward is maybe a temporary alleviation of said feeling of fear. But you then get them to investigate further that to see that actually that temporary alleviation comes with lots of negative externalities like feeling sick from overeating or completely running down your resilience through over-worrying. And you didn't use this term, but I know you use this term generally. You introduce the notion of the BBO, the bigger, better offer for the brain. The brain is, as you've pointed out to me in the past, a pleasure-seeking machine. And you offer mindfulness as the BBO, as a way to tune into our innate capacity to be curious about what's happening in our mind and body right now tuning into the physical sensations of the anxiety, any urges or emotions or thoughts that may be accompanying it. And this process, this process is inherently pleasurable and can cut the cycle. Nicely done. Yes, absolutely. You said one in two, roughly, probably a little bit north of that, it's working for. For the people for whom it's not working, what's their critique? That's a really good question. We've been able to do some research to look at, you know, are there baseline characteristics of folks that benefit more or less from, for example, we've only studied our Unwinning Anxiety app, but the idea that we found is that there's a small group of people that may have some experiential avoidance. That's our working hypothesis. And so if people are afraid 
to approach their own experience, it can be really hard to work with your experience. The good news is that's not even the majority. It's not even half. It's not even, you know, it's like a third or less of people that have some strong experiential avoidance. Just knowing that it can help move people and embolden people and empower people to move into the process more. So that's the piece that, that I would say it's it's really helpful for folks to really check to see, am I avoiding my experience? Is it, is it really hard for me to be with unpleasant things? And I would say in general, as a society, we aren't moving toward distress tolerance. We're kind of moving away from it with our phones as weapons of mass distraction because we're basically training ourselves that if something's unpleasant, we can just go on our phone and distract ourselves. And that's problematic overall. Yeah. So your biggest opponent in this process may be the culture. Yes, it certainly doesn't help. (laughs) A while ago, when we were talking about BBOs, bigger, better offers, you said that the mind has within it two BBOs that many of us overlook, curiosity slash mindfulness. And you also mentioned kindness. So in this context, I would imagine there are at least two ways one could go with kindness in a moment of fear or anxiety. One would be self-compassion, where you send yourself compassion for in the face of whatever fear you're feeling. The other would be doing something nice for somebody else, which is inherently ennobling. Are either of these alternatives part of your pedagogy? Oh, yes, they are. I think they're front and center. They're essential. And what, you know, whether it's curiosity, whether it's kindness, self-compassion, acts of kindness, all of these help us move away from that feeling of anxiety feels closed down. It feels contracted. It feels tight. You feel balled up. And when we're curious, we open to our experience. When we're kind or when kindness is bestowed upon us, we open when we're connected with others in acts of kindness, we open. And so really it's about anything that helps us open to our experience and really be with our experience. Can you say a little bit more from a nuts and bolts level, how we could apply kindness in a moment when we're feeling fear and about to go down a habit loop? (laughs) Sure. So the first thing I would say is somebody's got to recognize that they're about to go down a habit loop. If they are, don't recognize it, they're they're just going to go down it. So there's got to be a, a little bit of awareness there in that moment first. Like, oh, I'm about to go down a habit loop. And a lot of folks fall down self-judgmental habit loops, for example. So just, just starting with that as an example, if somebody starts to notice that they're going to beat themselves up or they fall down the, the shooting hole. I should have done that. I shouldn't have done that. They can then simply ask themselves, what am I getting from this? And then see, oh, this isn't really helping. And then bring in an act of self-compassion where they're just, it can be as simple as putting their hand on their hearts or just saying, I'm doing the best that I can right now or something to remind them that this human experience doesn't have to include <laughs> the self-flagellation that comes with self-judgment. That's a habit. And so there's one place for somebody to very simply and in a very short period of time bring in an act of kindness. Now, 
we can also go and practice random acts of kindness and just notice what it feels like. Because when we're kind to another being, when we're kind to nature, when we're kind to ourselves, then we can just reflect on that and see what that feels like. Oh, this kindness feels pretty good. And we store up our memory, kind of our memory banks of what kindness feels like. And we can go back and reflect on those. So if we're feeling anxious, we can reflect on, oh, what was it like when I was kind to myself? Or what was it like when that person was kind to me? That can kind of hit the pause button on that anxiety loop and give us a little space to breathe, bring our prefrontal cortex back online, and then say, oh, this might be a good time to do an act of kindness for myself. Or even, hey, let me go do something kind for somebody else. And then that virtuous cycle starts to become more and more ingrained as our new habit. I love everything you just said. I just want to highlight one thing. I just recently gave a TED talk about what I call broadly self-love, but what scientists refer to as self-compassion. And and I talked about this whole move of putting your hand on your heart or your chest or whatever, and, and how, for me, that was a very tough pill to swallow initially. <laughs> and I think for a lot of guys, that's... No, I'm generalizing here and I know it, but I, I suspect for a lot of guys that that's really true. So can you just talk about the science here that might get our fellow skeptics over the hump on this one? I'd be happy to. My lab's even done neuroimaging studies of people practicing loving kindness in the fMRI scanner. And we can watch, we can literally watch those self-referential brain networks that get caught up, that get really activated when we're caught up in worrying they quiet down, they get really quiet. So there's a fair amount of science behind it, whether you look at the neuroimaging, which is what my lab has largely done. And there are also a number of other labs that have looked at training in self-compassion and seeing all the positive benefits of that. And there, you know, there's some real benefits for society when we practice that. You use some terms of art there for, and for anybody who's new to the show, I just want to just define a few terms there. Loving kindness meditation is a form of meditation. We teach a lot of it over on the 10% Happier app. It, it essentially asks you to envision a series of beings, sometimes starting with yourself or an easy person, and then to a, a mentor, a neutral person, a difficult person, and then all beings. And you systematically send them good vibes, like may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be safe, may you live with ease. And this is the practice that Judd was talking about, watching people's default mode network, the sort of default mode that we're often in of thinking about ourselves, worrying about ourselves, planning for ourselves, quiet down. There is a whole field that we've covered quite a bit here on the show of self-compassion, which can combine compassionate self-touch, like putting your hand on your heart, compassionate self-talk, talking to yourself like a like you would talk to a good friend, reminding yourself that you're not alone in, in whatever travails you're enduring. And again, a lot of data behind both of these as, as just generally good things to do for yourself and specifically very helpful when caught in anxiety. Is all of that an accurate summation there, Judd? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so having done all of this throat clearing and foundation laying and level setting, let's move to some voicemails. The first one is from Robin, who has a question about anxiety as it relates to getting older. 
First of all, I really want to say that I have found the 10% Happier app a game changer for me in helping me cope with my anxiety. The anxiety meditations are just fabulous. What I would really like to hear is for somebody to explore the idea of existential anxiety. I find that even though I've had some health anxiety issues because I'm an older person approaching 70, I find that it really is part of an overall existential piece for me. And I've been researching little bits of this and realized that it is a common anxiety for older people. So I would really appreciate if uh, the 10% Happier team could pursue that. Thanks a lot. That's a great question. What this person is highlighting, how as we age, we don't know what's going to happen. And often it's not that our bodies get stronger and healthier, but often we can have some health anxiety related to things that, that don't work as well as they used to. So here, and I would say this can also be a lesson that we all can learn. And it's not just about aging or existential anxiety, but really about the process itself, which is if we kind of get in the habit of going, oh no, it's like, oh no, whether it's some health related issue or anything else, we can recognize, oh, there's that, oh no, where I'm kind of closing down to my experience. I might be bracing against it. I might be thinking, oh no, what's going to happen? I'm worried. And there we can kind of flip on the curiosity switch and even look at the inflection of our mental voice that, oh no, tends to feel more closed down. It feels more heavy. It feels heavier. And we go, oh, I'm in an anxiety habit loop. And we flip on that curiosity switch and light up the room a little bit. That, oh, in itself already starts to feel a little bit lighter and help us get out of that old rut. And at the same time, it can help us kind of approach life and whatever it is more with a growth mindset. Instead of going, oh no, what's going to happen? We can go, oh, things are changing. <laughs> How can I bring some curiosity and some fresh freshness to this? And we can start to see that freshness is a bigger, better offer. It feels lighter than the heaviness that comes when we get in this habit loop of approaching life and life that's always changing, right? That's not something we have any control over. So really seeing I'm, I'm beating my head against this change wall. Can I stop doing that? Because it's not helping anything. Change is going to still happen. So can I just approach it in a way that's going to be most easeful and ideally even, dare I say, most joyful? <laughs> and I say that because... We truly can approach life. You know, if we get in the habit of being curious, it feels so much better <laughs> that just anybody can play with it themselves. How does, oh no, feel versus, oh. <laughs> but even that, okay, I'm just going to press you because even that, I'm completely with you. I don't disagree with the thing you've said. And it doesn't stop, for me at least, the fact that my ankles, knees, and other joints and are not functioning as well. Bursitis acts up. The thought of death is not super appetizing. I don't know. The worrying part of my brain just kicks in with that as a rejoinder. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
And so I'm sure you've talked about this on your podcast before. I'm sure somebody has described these in Buddhism, these two arrows. There's the the arrow that comes with pain. You know, it's like you get shot by an arrow, it hurts. And then you start thinking, oh, am I going to die? Is this who is my shirt going to stain? Whatever. That's that second arrow that we shoot ourselves with. That is completely optional. And so maybe the Rory and comes in as a rejoiner. And you can ask yourself, is this helping anything? <laughs> maybe that's a third arrow and a fourth arrow. And so if we can recognize what is optional and we can see that not going, not getting caught up in those optional habit loops actually helps us deal with the joints, the bursitis or whatever more, then that's that's ideal. We're not wasting energy getting stuck in these these side stories that aren't going to help and actually make things worse. How does that square with your rejoinder? I think what you're saying is aging is non-negotiable. Do you want to be stuck in a toxic eddy of rumination about it? Or do you want to bring a lightness and curiosity to a, a natural process? Amen, brother. Yes, well said. This is idiosyncratic, what I'm about to say. But for me, curiosity is enormously helpful. And the self-compassion stuff, particularly the self-talk stuff, has really been useful. I'm, I'm very influenced by the work of people like Kristen Neff, Chris Germer, Ethan Cross, all of whom have been on the show, and we'll put links in the, in the show notes, who have helped me see that in moments where I'm getting stuck, I can do this two-part move, maybe even a three-part move, but one is put a hand on my chest, even though I find it personally to be pretty strange and maybe cheesy. But it, again, a lot of science has suggested it's really helpful. So that's one, some sort of reassuring self-touch. Two, talking to myself the way I would talk to my son or a good friend, the way a really good coach would talk to you, somebody who's not blind to your flaws, but is on your side and wants to you to do your best. So in a moment like worrying about how I look in the mirror because I'm getting older, dude, you're lucky to be alive still. And this happens naturally. And you're doing everything you can to stay as healthy as possible. Keep it up. And then the third piece is just to be aware of what Kristen Neff calls a sort of common humanity, that this is universal. What I'm dealing with right now, tens of millions of people are dealing with at this very nanosecond. So all of that as an add-on to the curiosity has been really helpful to me. And I'm just curious what you have to say about that. Absolutely. Going through life alone for most people, some people really enjoy it, but for most of us, that journey is really best done with with friends. And if we think of all other humans and all other beings, even that doesn't sound too cheesy. We're kind of going through this journey together. So we might as well link up arms. And one thing that's beautiful about that is that when we learn to work with our own minds, we get inspired to help others. And so we see a little bit on the path and we, we see, oh, that's kind of slippery. And then we turn around and naturally say to the person behind us, hey, that part of the path is a little slippery and it benefits two beings at once. It feels good to help and it feels good to be helped. And so that connection, that compassion piece, I think is really essential. Let's go on to the next voicemail here. It's from Bruce. He is a longtime meditator and yet still dealing with anxiety, something I can 
really relate to. So here we go with Bruce. I'm a meditator for seven plus years and I have fully uh, seen how quietness, stillness, and meditation has uh, lessened my day-to-day experience uh, greatly and immensely. And uh, yet, when I am in the midst of the intense emotion of anxiety or even sadness, um, it is difficult for me to experience the softening that I know that noting and self-compassion can can foster. My question is, is there something else I can be doing to tap into the benefits of meditation when you're in the grips of the intense anxiety? Yeah, it's a great question. And so here, I think of meditation as a tool to help us learn how our minds work. And so if we can learn how our minds work, we can then learn to work with our minds in the moment. And so it's not like we're, if we're in the middle of an intense episode of anxiety, oh no, I've got to go find a meditation cushion and sit down. It's that aspect of, oh, what do I know about my mind? Can I step back and map this and then bring in some curiosity to you know, whether it, whatever the behavior is, if it's worrying, for example? And I would even say one way to start that process is to find something that can really ground us. So if we can't, if we're so freaked out, it can be hard to step back and say, oh, what's this habit loop? It's hard to be curious in those moments. So here we can bring in practices. I'm sure there are a gazillion that have that have been put out on your podcast fit where we just look around and look around the room. If we're in a room, look around if we're on the subway, looking around at the people in the subway car. If we're in nature, looking at the plants and the trees and just grounding ourselves externally. Like, oh, what am I aware of right now? As a way to just really ground awareness outside of that spinning habit loop in our head. Another way we can ground ourselves is to find an anxiety-free zone in our body. One, uh, two that I know that work pretty well are our hands and our feet. They tend not to be places where we hold anxiety. So we can ask ourselves, oh, what do my feet feel like right now? And we can even ask, huh, which foot feels warmer than the other? I'm just doing this. Hmm. And it, it kind of draws that anxiety, invites that awareness right into our feet and kind of draws down the anxiety simply because we're not fueling it by being caught up in it. So a grounding exercise can be really helpful. And then we can, once our once our prefrontal cortex can back up, get, come back online, we can then start to notice, oh, what's this anxiety habit loop? The other thing I would say is if we think, oh, okay, I've been meditating a long time, I'm still caught up in anxiety, it's a good time to look for resistance. So am I resisting my experience? And the typical mental sequence goes something like, oh no, here's anxiety again, but I meditate, it shouldn't be here. And that tends to be a resistance. Like I'm not okay with what's happening right now. Otherwise this mental commentary wouldn't be going on in my head. And so there again, we can look for those, oh, oh. And that sense tend to be a sense of resistance. We can go, oh, Am I resisting my experience right now? And suddenly 
it can awaken our curiosity and we can say, oh, what can I learn about myself right now? What does resistance feel like? And we can flip it on its head from, oh, here's this anxiety again. I shouldn't have anxiety anymore. I've meditated that proverbial golden seven years to, oh, what can I learn? And we've, we've already started to awaken that curiosity in that moment. I love all of that, Judd. It's, it's brilliant. And Bruce, just to add, and at the risk of sounding like a broken record, what's helpful for me at slightly more years of meditation and yet still anxious is the stuff we just talked about, the, what I sometimes call, without her permission, the Neff three-step these three moves that I sometimes do out of order that Professor Kristen Neff, the sort of godmother of self-compassion, recommends where some sort of self-compassionate touch, if you can get over yourself and do it, talking to yourself, counter-programming against the negativity bias in your brain slash mind, and then trying to remember that whatever you're dealing with is something that tens of millions of other members of Homo sapiens are also dealing with. So, I just would layer that on top of Judd's excellent advice. Coming up, Judd's going to answer listener voicemails and he'll have some practical tips for uh, working with panic attacks and also stage fright after this. I always love it when uh, the people behind a product that my family already uses tell us that they want to be sponsors of this show. Today, it's Tidy Cats. As you may know, we have uh, an unreasonable amount of cats four of them. So we use a lot of kitty litter and Tidy Cats is great. Uh, they have a product called Tidy Care Alert, which uses color changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one or four cats, they make it easy to keep track. Plus, it's low dust and lightweight with long lasting ammonia control from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. I'm not a vet, but I do love cats. Tidy Cats. Check them out. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs, like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com deals. Next voicemail is from Jess, who has another question I can relate to, which is about anxiety and when that tips over into panic. Hello there. I'm wondering if you guys might be able to answer a question about what happens when anxiety gets super acute and then it turns to panic. Like, What can we do in those moments? Yeah, great question. So speaks from personal experience. I used to get panic attacks during residency and... Yes, note the irony. Here's a guy training to be a psychiatrist and he's getting his own panic attacks. I used to wake up from sleep in the middle of the night and I'd have these full-blown panic attacks. And <laughs> the first one that I had, I had this full-blown panic attack and I was doing a lot of noting practice at the time. 
for my own personal practice, just noting my experience. And so it was kind of strong as a habit. And so I kind of noted, it's like, oh, oh, tunnel vision. Oh, sweating. Oh, racing heart. Oh, I can't breathe. Oh, feeling like I'm going to die. Oh, they really have. We really, these are really true. So the panic attack happened, my first one, and then I noted through it and then it ended. And then my brain in psychiatry training mode went through the diagnostic checklist. It was like, check, 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 check. Oh, you just had a panic attack. And I also remember thinking, wow, those thoughts of dying are really true because I really thought I was going to die. And then probably being sleep deprived, but also helped along by my own mindfulness practice, I went back to sleep. And so what I would say is these practices, especially the noting practice, where it helps us observe but not be caught up in our experience can be a game changer. And I say especially it's not about the act of having a panic attack itself that makes somebody meet the diagnostic criteria for a panic disorder. It's really about the fear and the worry of having one in the future. And then we start avoiding situations related to when we had our last panic attack and all these things. So we can learn to have the panic attacks and kind of, I don't want to say embrace them because I wouldn't sure anybody that can embrace a panic attack. Like, woohoo, I want another one of those. But really to hold our arms wide and hold ourselves in this loving, kind embrace. And instead of going, oh no, here it comes again. Or, oh no, I just had one. We can go, oh, it's okay. And we can note through the experience and know that we can be with our experience. And I have to say, when that roller coaster ride ends, certainly just speaking from my own experience, it it feels tremendously empowering. It gives me the confidence to be able to work with really tough stuff. Another example, I was I, the fortune of learning how to surf midlife. And I remember being caught in what they call inside, get caught inside where the waves are just like pounding on your head. And I remember being underwater, getting pounded yet again, and this started to panic because my brain's like, dude, you need some oxygen. And I remember noting, oh, there's, there's panic. Okay. And if I, and the instinct was to like flail my arms and try to get to the surface as quickly as I can. But the idea is if I do that, I'm going to waste all my energy and my oxygen. So I just need to relax and let myself float up to the surface so I can catch my breath. And if another wave's about to come on onto my head, it's going to happen. And so there it's really about like, being able to have those practices be ingrained enough that we can learn to be with even the rough stuff with panic itself and trust that we can rely on them when we need them. I know this podcast is designed to let Judd and our listeners talk, but I'm just going to hog the mic for a second and tell a story because I've been going through a resurgence of panic attacks recently triggered by long-standing claustrophobia. And so I've been having trouble on airplanes and elevators. I think it's multifactorial. One of the contributors is that in the pandemic, I wasn't in elevators or on airplanes that much. So I sort of deconditioned. And one of the treatments that I really have had a lot of positive experience with for panic is exposure therapy, where you expose yourself systematically and carefully to the things that are scaring you. And the point of the story I'm about to tell is that you don't want to push yourself too hard in this. I just got back from a week in LA that I planned with 
me and my seven-year-old son, and I planned it before I was having this recent quite acute spike in panic. And so the, the plane ride was tough, but I got through it. And as my therapist, the therapist I work with specifically on panic issues has said, uh, he's never seen anybody actually totally lose it in front of their child. But there's something about being with your child that can keep you together. But anyway, so the flight was okay, but I had <laughs> planned before the panic to take him to both Disneyland on one day and Universal Studios on a subsequent day. And if anybody has ever been to an amusement park, the thing about rides is they lock you in. And I went through a day at Disneyland where actually it was like most of the day I was very positive exposure therapy. I would be locked into these rides and I was actually doing all the things that Judd was talking about and doing all the things that I've been trained to do in my exposure therapy of getting curious about the sensations and then having some positive self-talk about, yeah, I've experienced these sensations a million times. I've always survived. There is no real danger here. The brain is lying to you right now. And it was really working. By the end of the day, though, I was really exhausted. And there was one final ride my son wanted to go on. And I knew not to go on it. And he was really not happy with me, but I didn't do it. However, that night, for one reason or another, I didn't sleep well. And when we got up the next morning to go to Universal Studios, I was very depleted and was skipping most of the rides all day long, uh, but then decided at the end of the day to go on a 45-minute studio tour where you're in an open air, tr like trolley type thing. Because I had done that ride with my parents when I was a kid. So I was thinking, okay, this one I can do. It's not really even a ride. It's a tour. But they have changed the tour now. So that actually at three points in the ride, you have to go into these hangars where they do these 3D fights between King Kong and a dinosaur. And the tram is shaking. And, and then another one is a simulated earthquake where you're stuck in there or the thing's <laughs> shaking and everything's falling apart around you. So I've made it through two of these on this 45-minute ride, and we're entering the third, and I'm just completely dead. And the third is called The Fast and the Furious. It's after the Fast and the Furious movies where you're going to get locked into a hangar and they're going to do a reenactment of racing in a car. And I pulled the ripcord. I had to get off the ride. And my son was really embarrassed. I was really embarrassed. But I knew I was at my limit. So we're giving you all these tools, folks, especially as it pertains to panic. I just want to point out that again, with anxiety, I think that's a little bit more workable. But panic, when you're in full fight or flight, there are times when you need to know that you got to pull yourself out of the situation. And as embarrassing as that was, and I was on the phone the next day with my shrink and I started crying because I thought I had totally traumatized my child. As embarrassing as that was, I think... I was right to know when I was at my limit. So what say you, doctor? Oh, yeah, 100%. So I'm glad you bring that forward. The None of these practices can be done in a forced manner. You and I have probably talked about this before, but you know, I spent 10 years beating my head against the meditation wall. And anything that we do to try to force ourselves with these practices are actually antithetical to the practices themselves. Curiosity can't be forced. Kindness can't be forced. And so what you're talking about is this self-care aspect where we're asking ourselves, what do I need right now? 
as compared to what I would want. I might want to grit my teeth and make it through this last ride, but you know, we can ask, what do I need? And this is what I need. And we take care of ourselves. And that's the most compassionate response. That's the practice is compassion. So I'm so glad you bring that forward because that's so critical. So many people, myself included, have approached meditation with the just grit your teeth and force it. I remember some meditation retreat teacher telling me on a retreat one time saying, she was so exasperated with me that Judd, your, your path to enlightenment is going to be through striving because <laughs> <laughs> I was striving so much. I was like, but, but that's that. And then I was like, oh, later. I don't even remember how many years later. I was like, oh, that's what she was talking about. <laughs> yeah, not about striving. It's about curiosity. Curiosity is not striving. Kindness is not striving. And the beauty of those things, they take us by the hand and show us the way in such a gentle way that it just seems like it was obvious all along when we see it. Just to hang a lantern on something you said there, Chris Germer, who's a, a longtime collaborator of Kristen Neff. Chris is at Harvard. Kristen Neff is at the University of Texas, Austin. Chris, when he was on the show a while ago, said that the preeminent self-compassion question you should ask yourself is the one that you articulated just moments ago, Judd. What do I need right now? And let that be your guide in many things in your life. Let's go on to the next call. It's from Laura, and it's Yet another one I can relate to deeply, it has to do with stage fright. Whenever I give a presentation to people, I get horrendous stage fright. It's awful. It's heart beating out of my chest, waves of burning heat all over my body, and I just can't think. Unless I have my presentation completely written out and take propranolol, which is a beta blocker that slows my heart rate down. So any advice for stage fright, I would be grateful. Thanks so much. So I think if I remember the research correctly, people fear public speaking more than death if you take the polls. So I'm sure a lot of folks can relate to that question. And here, so the question is, what can we do? I think this person's already highlighting some beneficial aspects of if we really get stuck in that stage fright loop, it can be hard to get unstuck. And so finding ways to give us those handholds, those railings, like writing out our presentation, et cetera, can be a really helpful way to stay grounded in the present moment instead of having our mind fly off in the, oh no, oh no, people are looking at me. And then there can be many ways to bring in some of the things that we've been talking about today even, where it's just like practicing slowly. It's like exposure therapy, slowly standing up on an empty stage and notice and grounding ourselves. What's it feel like here? What's it feel like here? Noticing thoughts that habitually come up and then really doubling down on our mindfulness practices, for example, to help us be able to be present when things come up. And then even working in situations where that anxiety comes up when we're not on stage to give us the confidence and trust that we can work with anxiety. Like, okay, I can work with it here. I can work with it here. And then start practicing working with it on stage, even with all of the props, so to speak, that we have, those things that prop us up, like the written out speech. And then eventually building toward 
the being able to be on stage and wing it. And I have to say, this is not for everyone. <laughs> for some of us, there's nothing wrong with just doing what this person highlighted. And it might be just as good as it gets because it is that can be such a really challenging thing for folks to do. So the other piece there is how can I build my practices to be able to stand up on stage, but also not have the expectation that I'm going to do this in order to. If we get in that mindset of I've got to do this, then we have a destination in mind. And that destination invariably trips us up. I, I really like the approach of cliche as it is, life is a journey. Like, can we, well, can we explore this? Oh, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. As compared to this has to work this time. Very different approaches that this has to work is a very closed down, contracted force. Whereas, oh, let me explore with this. Let me try this. And then we learn no matter what. Just to say to Laura, as somebody who has been a public speaker his whole adult life, I rely on two of the things that you mentioned there. One of them is propranolol. I take a beta blocker every time I'm going to do public speaking. And the second, and by, by the way, for those who don't know what a beta blocker is, and Judd, you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it's a non-narcotic medication. So in other words, you're not loopy or high or anything like that. It just puts a ceiling on how fast your heart can beat. So it really precludes to a great extent the amount of panic symptoms you're going to feel. So that's really helpful as just a net. And the second thing is preparation. It's just, uh, I just prepare so much that it looks like I'm winging it. And if that means I have to have my notes on, on the stage, whether I use them or not, then I keep them with me, even if it's just in my pocket. The final thing to say is more of a question really for Judd, which is, uh, I believe there are forms of therapy, either you know, clinical therapy or, or sort of more informal stuff like Toastmasters, where people can really get a workout in public speaking, the CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, or other forms of therapy where people can train. Yes, I mean, this is such a common phenomenon that, yeah, uh, there are ways where people can practice giving speeches in public, and that's a great way to do it. I'll also highlight one thing that you're pointing out, whereas if we pharmacologically limit the rapidity with which our heart can beat, if we give a ceiling to that, that highlights how interconnected our mind and body is, where just the heart racing can trigger panic in certain situations because we've learned to associate racing heart with panic. There's even a term for this called, I think it's called somatic memory, where we form memories in our body related to certain emotions. And so when we kind of fit those body postures <laughs> or those physiologic parameters, and then they turn on, our brain can suddenly think, oh, am I supposed to be anxious right now? Because my heart's racing this, 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 and this. So I think it really highlights this mind-body connection and how the two, there can be this reciprocal feeding on each other. We can have a thought that triggers these physiologic reactions. We can have physiologic reactions that happen for whatever reason that can trigger the thoughts. And that's where some of these pharmacologic interventions can help to kind of break that link between the two as a temporizing measure. Quick note here before we get to the next voicemail, a, a great hack that was given to me by a professor from Columbia, Madupa Akinola. She's actually a business school professor, but has studied stress a lot. And she often recommends people 
do a little bit of cognitive reframing, which is if you start to notice your heart beating, palms sweating, to just tell yourself, this is the body preparing you to act. Thank you. There's nothing wrong here. And as long as you don't tip over to full on fight or flight, I think it's a really, really useful reframing. Coming up, Judd answers more listener voicemails, including a question about whether there is such a thing as throwing too much at anxiety and how to differentiate between anxiety and excitement after this. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. This is perhaps a bit idiosyncratic, but one of the experiences that my son, Alexander, loves is mini golf. We recently went to a mini golf uh, themed restaurant in uh, in Denver where we were traveling. And uh, when we go to Montauk, which is our favorite beach town here on the East Coast, we play mini golf at Putt-Putt all the time. Alexander, his buddies, me. And in one way or another, these experiences are really what become the, the most memorable and important part about taking trips. Which brings me to Viator, which is a website and app where you can book travel experiences, everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. With over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries, there's something for everyone. I have used Viator myself. I find it to be incredibly helpful. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. I had a very pleasant experience shopping on quince.com. Very easy to use website, and they've got a terrific selection. I bought myself a cashmere sweater and a sweatshirt. That sweatshirt in particular is an extremely heavy rotation. If you watch the YouTube version of this podcast, you will see it. Or if you see me on social media occasionally, I'm wearing my Quince sweatshirt. And I have to say, uh, the prices are hard to beat for a luxury brand. What's more, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. This next voicemail has to do with how we manage anxiety and excitement, which is an interesting and tricky balance. So here we go. Hi there. My question is on anxiety and excitement. For me, I've been a type A person who has a lot of excitement around my work, but it has led to some burnout, trouble sleeping, and excess tension in my body. Recently, I read Brene Brown's new book, Atlas of the Heart, and in there, there's a line where she says, excitement and anxiety show up the exact same way in the body, which I have definitely experienced in my meditation practice. So knowing this, my question is, do you have any recommendations on how to work with the excitement slash anxiety? So it's a really important observation that that's been made here is which is the feeling of anxiety can share a lot of characteristics with the feeling of excitement there's this restless quality to it and if you look at it from a survival or an evolutionary standpoint excitement says go do something and anxiety also says 
go do something because there's uncertainty here. Make that uncertainty go away. And so what's the difference between anxiety and excitement? Often, because the physiologic response feels very much the same, it tends to be simply the thoughts that are associated with the feeling. And so somebody could have anxiety and have the restlessness, the tightness, that urgency that says do something. And it's got that oh no loop playing in their head. And somebody with excitement could have the very same physiologic response. And they're going, oh, I can't wait for whatever they're excited about. And both of those, as the caller pointed out, can burn us out because it it's really using up a lot of energy. It's like driving our car in first gear all the time. The engine is very inefficient. The engine overheats, all these things. So we can get burnt out. And the good news here is the simplicity of the practices. So we can work with these the very same way, whether it's thoughts and emotions associated with anxiety or thoughts and emotions associated with excitement. We just bring in that curiosity, like, oh, what thought? And note the thought. What's what's my body feel like right now? Note the sensations. Am I having this urge to do something? Because that's my survival brain saying, do something. That's what dopamine's all about. It says, go do something. And so we can note that. And we can bring that practice in no matter whether it's anxiety or excitement. I'll add one other thing because I think in today's society, and Dan, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Today's society, we've kind of been trained that excitement equals happiness because it gets us to buy stuff, go on this ride, go to this, <laughs> go to the theme park, go buy this, go on this date, whatever. And oh, there's a, I think it was, I'll butcher the quote, but I'll try it. Saito Upandita wrote in his book, In This Very Life, something about people mistake the excitement of mind for happiness and they don't notice the greater joy that comes from calm and peace or whatever. And what he's highlighting is that when you really look at it, especially if you compare and look at the similarities between anxiety and excitement, excitement is exciting, but it gives us that exciting rush and then we crash. And that restless quality that comes with excitement, which says to go do something, restlessness itself doesn't actually feel that good. So when we compare that to what it feels like when we're joyful, we can check with our brains to see which is the bigger, better offer. And we can we can see for ourselves that excitement might <laughs> might be more than it's cracked up to be, so to speak. If you want my thought on it, I would say what is often said in Buddhist circles when somebody says something wise, they say sadhu, <laughs> well said. And yes, you and the aforementioned Sayada Upandita, the Burmese, the late Burmese meditation master, I believe are completely correct that we mistake, we conflate excitement with happiness. You just get curious, as Judd's been telling us to do throughout this whole conversation, what does it feel like when you buy a lottery ticket or prepare to bite into a piece of candy as opposed to what it feels like. I'll just put this in personally. For me, the excitement of eating some slice of pizza or getting somebody famous to retweet something that I want them to retweet or whatever, that buzzy, headlong rush feeling is totally different from the feeling I get when I hug my son, where my whole nervous system relaxes. Or 
the very few moments I've had on meditation retreats where the discursive mind, the chattering mind goes way down and I'm just filled with this inexplicable sense of everything's okay. Those are not the same species of animal. <laughs> Clear branch point in the evolutionary chain. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Yes. The emotional evolutionary chain. Let me do one last voicemail here, and it's from Sarah, and it has to do with COVID. Take it away, Sarah. I work in the music business as a songwriter and performer, and I've dealt with anxiety in different forms throughout my life. I've had a little bit of social anxiety, and I've also had some performance anxiety related to um, when I have big performances on stages in front of lots and lots and lots of people. Those kinds of things I've gotten used to sort of... um, relaxing down after I get into the flow of things on stage. But the place where I'm really struggling seems to be with my day-to-day general anxiety levels after my husband and I got sick with COVID five weeks ago. Um, We didn't have terrible cases. Our symptoms were mild, but around day five or six, I felt like I was starting to get my energy back and tried to go back to normal life. That apparently was a mistake because after about 24 hours of putting out my regular productivity, I shut down and all of a sudden had horrible, unresolvable heartburn, headache, and really, really bad high level of baseline general anxiety. It's been a few weeks since those symptoms presented. And while the heartburn and headache are reoccurring, they're quite small compared to how they used to be. Whereas the feeling of general anxiety has sort of remained. I'm a meditator. I'm a breather. I'm an exerciser. I do all of these things, but I'm having a really, really, really hard time with anxiety at this point. I guess my question for you is, how do I break through with anxiety when nothing that I'm used to doing to managing it works and I feel completely overwhelmed. And also, is there such a thing as throwing too much at anxiety? Is there such a thing as as focusing too much energy and intention on trying to handle anxiety? What a really great and important question. And so the, the short answer is, whenever we're throwing stuff at anxiety, you know, that saying what we resist persists, that can be an indicator that we're not okay with what's happening. And we're going to do all this stuff to make the anxiety go away. When we do stuff, that is us trying to brick ourselves up and create that wall so the anxiety doesn't get to us. The paradox here is that the only way out is through. And so when we learn to open to, to allow, to accept as much as we can our thoughts and our emotions and our sensations, that's how we don't feed them. And that's how that resistance can go away. So we can certainly throw too much at anxiety, but I would say we can't open too much to anxiety. And here with all the caveats, taking care of ourselves, respecting our limits, all of these things, but really it's about that openness, that acceptance that helps us be able to see the feelings and the thoughts as simply feelings and thoughts as compared to something that is terrible and horrible that we have to make go away. It's not pleasant, 
Yet by trying to make these things go away or trying to do something to make whatever our experiences change or go away, that trying tends to feed that resistance. And so here, the, the <laughs> to bring in another cliche, if we can really open to it and, and realize, okay, the only way out is through, we open to it, we can even learn to open to the obstacle becoming the way. And so, oh no, here's anxiety. We can go, oh, oh, here's anxiety. How can this help me learn? How can this help me grow stronger to be with difficulty? And that in itself becomes a gift. This, it sounds crazy, the gift of anxiety probably not a book that would sell very well. But the gift of anxiety, we approach it through like this lens of openness and bow to it as a teacher and say, what can I learn from this? That's where it opens our curiosity and it opens our kindness and compassion to ourselves because we're really using everything at our disposal to help ourselves. You can throw too much at anxiety in a type A effort to get rid of it, but you can't open too much to it. Yes. With the caveat that you want to be careful not to push yourself too hard in the opening. Right. We can't force ourselves to open. <laughs> yes. 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 But in the end, learning to work with this natural phenomenon there's nothing wrong with you if you have anxiety. It's very common. In the end, learning to work with this obstacle can become the way in which we have an overall better life. Yeah. I actually have somebody who is a former patient because he doesn't need my help anymore that I write about in my underwriting anxiety book named Dave. And he full-blown panic disorder, full-blown generalized anxiety disorder for 30 years. And he now talks about his anxiety as this gift that's helped him learn so much about himself and at the same time has helped him work through it. That obstacle literally became the way for him. Judd, really appreciate your time. I want to remind everybody the paperback edition of Unwinding Anxiety, subtitle New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind. I want to remind you all that it's now available, said book, in paperback. Go check it out. And also, don't forget, Judd's got an app, one of many. Actually, Judd, remind everybody about your, your various apps so they can go check those out as well. Oh, sure. We have one for smoking called Craving to Quit, one to help people with their relationship to eating, whether it's emotional eating, overeating, et cetera, called Eat Right Now. And then the Unwinding Anxiety app that uh, is also the same title as the book. They can just go to my website, drjudd.com. Uh, drjud.com and it's got information on all those things dr judd thank you again really appreciate it great to see you thanks for having me thanks again to judd always great to have him on the show thanks as well to everybody who works so hard on this show 10 Percent happier is produced by gabrielle zuckerman dj cashmere justine davy and lauren smith our senior producer is marissa schneiderman kimmy regler is our managing producer and our executive producer is jen Poyant. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a freshy, a brand new episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, 
Uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths. And where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi. I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.